I was raised in a cult. Of course, if you'd have asked me all those years ago or anyone else in our small fundamentalist church if we were a cult, we'd have indignantly replied, absolutely not. Other groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they're cults, but we're not a cult. Everything became normalized, though, but it wasn't until decades later, after I deconstructed my entire belief system and walked away from the Christian faith entirely, that I began to see just how cultish the whole thing actually was. But before all of that, for over 20 years, I'd served both as a pastor and a Bible college teacher, so I had a hand in it, furthering the toxicity also. So in the process of rebuilding my life and discovering my authentic identity, I've got lots to work through, things like religious trauma syndrome, rapture anxiety, and just so much more. Join me, Dr. Clint Haycock, on the Mind Shift podcast as we take a look at such topics as cult tactics and psychology, religious trauma syndrome and religious addiction, taking your life back after leaving a cult or high-control group, and finally, dominion theology and the dangers posed by the Christian right not just in America, but indeed the world. You can find my show on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Who knows, it might just be time for a mind shift. Episode 106, Overconfident Christianity. This is Matthew, and in this episode of Still Unbelievable, I'll be going through an episode of Unbelievable from October 2021. The episode is a promo for the premier Christianity course, Confident Christianity. And for a fee, you can watch a series of video lectures from the likes of William Lane Craig, John Lennox, Amy Orr Ewing, and Gary Habermas. The broadcast version features samples from some of these lectures, and this is what I shall be reviewing to reveal that what is expressed is actually unreasonable overconfidence. As usual, there will be references in the show notes, starting with link one, which goes to the original episode in Apple Podcasts. It appears that the original YouTube video is no longer available. But before I get into the featured content, Let's start with Justin Briley's introduction. I've been hosting this unbelievable radio show and podcast for over 15 years now, believe it or not. And in that time, I've sat down with literally hundreds of Christians and non-Christians to debate the evidence for faith. Now, after all those years of engaging atheists, agnostics and sceptics, I actually remain more confident than ever that Christianity is an intellectually robust option for thinking people. And yet those societies which put greater emphasis on educating their population are seeing the greatest numbers leaving Christianity. That's why, along with myself, in this course, you'll learn from some of the world's leading Christian thinkers, people like William Lane Craig, Professor John Lennox, Amy Orr Ewing and Gary Habermas, and all of the evidence that they've presented for Christianity at past unbelievable conferences. Evidence. That thing that's greatly promised, but always under-delivered, and usually equivocated with arguments. So the way we structure this course, and we'll be getting to uh, some audio from one of the sessions in just a moment, is by creating six modules, helping you think through questions around the evidence for Christianity versus atheism. There's that promise again. Philosophical arguments for God. The problem of suffering, science and faith, and the evidence for the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Unfortunately, that latter one doesn't get touched in these samples. Maybe you have to spend money to hear that. So if you're anything like me, you know that we live in an increasingly secular and sceptical world. can often feel like faith is under threat. But I do believe that faith isn't simply blind belief. You know, it's actually trusting in something we've got good evidence for. I'm beginning to wonder if I need a bell for every time the word evidence is used. But anyway... If evidence, why faith? Dictionary seems to quibble a little bit with the way that Justin defines it, but let's give him a pass this time and see what happens. And I think that in recent years, Christianity's actually undergone a revival of its intellectual tradition. Frankly, this sounds like pandering to the faithful just to try to help them to hold on to their meagre faith. But remember, this was recorded two years ago. And nothing much has changed, has it? And there's a, a new generation of believers emerging who are equipped to engage the world with all of their hearts, their soul and their mind. Well, if you say so, but this hard-nosed sceptic really needs more than just someone say so. I think wherever you are on the faith journey, I hope that 
this course might help to bring you that confidence to take the message of the risen Jesus to many more. And that's frankly enough of that. So let's get into the very first clip, which coincidentally is the one from Justin himself. I've recently adopted a new strap line for the show that I often introduce the programme with. Conversations that matter. Conversations are really important, aren't they? So what about reaching that vast, untapped, non-Christian audience that was out there? What about reaching beyond our own bubble? So the format of this new show was fairly simple. I'd sit down with two guests each week, one a Christian and the other not, uh, to talk to them about why one believed and the other didn't. And we'd take calls from listeners and see what they had to say, and we'd title the show Unbelievable with a question mark. But the question mark on the end of Unbelievable was essential. Each show would debate some kind of a question with the intention of of testing the central claims of Christianity. Could they stand up to scrutiny? What were the alternative views? And along the way, what could we learn from each other? Other people outside the Christian faith who could join in the big conversation. Now, I became a Christian around the age of 15. Everyone has a different story, but mine was a powerful experience of God at a youth retreat. Having extolled the virtues of intellectualism, we now have the devastating admission that a young teenage Justin became a Christian because of experience, and now is post hoc rationalising it, trying to do so intellectually. And I'll be forever grateful for the youth pastor and the people who mentored me in my early faith. And when I experienced the presence of Jesus in my life... This would be a great place to detail how a 15-year-old can know from an emotional experience that Jesus actually produced it. I immediately wanted to go out and tell other people about him. And the fact was... I had had a very personal, very powerful experience, but it was hard for me to convey that to others who... Great point. How do you convey a deeply personal, individualised experience to others who have not shared it? Now, for some people, simply telling them your testimony, how God's changed your life, is enough to spark enough curiosity to make them investigate the claims of Christianity for themselves. But often people need something else. They need people who are very sceptical, are perhaps looking for reasons that are available to both of us objective reason yes oh yes please yes rather than our personal subjective reasons to consider the claims of christianity something we've both got access to and that's when we come to the technical word apologetics evidence not evidence you know that thing that's been mentioned multiple times always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. And that's what we aimed to do on the show, give a a reason for the hope that we had, but to do it with civility, with gentleness, with respect. And mostly that is what Justin has achieved with the show Unbelievable. But I think he spent far too much time trying to share and not enough time trying to listen and understand. And that's the end of Justin's sample segment. We move now on to the wonderful, the gracious the absolutely intellectual, the almighty, William Lane Craig. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for coming out on a Saturday to spend it, engaging your minds with these important questions. And I've been invited to talk today about, is there evidence for God? Yeah, I definitely should have introduced the bell sound effect. Oh well, you'll just have to suffer with my voice instead. It's a truism that British society is post-Christian. The British social historian Callum Brown argues that the death of Christian Britain occurred during a remarkably brief period of time between about 1960 and 1975. See the links at 2 for reference to the book and a detailed review, including a response from Callum Brown. Unbelief was symptomatic of the 1960s. On April 8, 1966, the American newsweekly Time carried a lead story for which the cover was completely black, except for three words emblazoned in bright red letters against the dark background. And the words read, Is God dead? 
And the story described the so-called death of God movement then current in American theology. The philosophical precedents for faith's demise during the 1960s were laid in the previous decades. Back in the 1940s and 50s, it was widely believed among philosophers that talk about God is meaningless because it's not verifiable by the five senses. The book Language, Truth, and Logic by the British philosopher A.J. Ayer You can read that book online at link three. It appears to be from about the 1930s. Served as a sort of manifesto of this movement. The principal weapon used by Ayer in his crusade against anything metaphysical was the vaunted verification principle of meaning. According to that principle, a sentence, in order to be meaningful, must be capable, in principle, of being empirically verified. This is eminently reasonable. Why would any intellectual want to object to empirical verification? Surely the independent verification should be welcomed as it gives the weight of objectivity to any truth claim, while failure leaves the claim squandering in the depths of personal opinion. Surely an intellectual heavyweight such as William Lane Craig wouldn't suggest empirical verification is a bad thing, would he? Since metaphysical statements were beyond the reach of empirical science, they could not be verified and were therefore dismissed as meaningless. Ah, he's going to go with metaphysics doesn't come under the remit of empirical verification, therefore he can just make up any old chick, call it metaphysics, and bingo, the truth has been arrived at. Hmm, let's see. Now, Ayer was very explicit about the theological implications of this verificationism. Since God is a metaphysical object, the possibility of knowledge was, and I quote, ruled out by our treatment of metaphysics. Thus, there can be no knowledge of God. This is the classic agnostic position. God can't be known, therefore why should I believe anything about it? The collapse of this verificationism during the second half of the 20th century was undoubtedly the most important philosophical event of the century. Philosophers discovered that the verification principle was not only unscientific... I'm not sure if Craig is quoting someone else or making this statement himself. Either way, he does seem to affirm it, which is a very odd stance to take. The whole foundation of why the scientific method works is through verification by repeating tests and publishing in peer review. Verification increases the confidence with which we can know things. This is how we have confidence in vaccines and other medical breakthroughs. This is how we continue to improve all the technologies on which our lives now depend. Labelling verification as unscientific smells like a bad argument as income. But, in fact, self-refuting. The statement, you should only believe what can be scientifically proven, cannot itself be scientifically proven. Called it. Some may remember that apologist Tim Holt pulled this trick when he and I had a discussion back in episode 72. See link 5. Verification is about increasing our confidence in what we think we know about the world around us. It's a methodology used to increase knowledge. Only a fool would think that it should work on itself. Notice though how Craig rephrases it as You should only believe what can be scientifically proven in order to set up his straw man. People don't use the phrase as Craig worded it. Scientific affirmation is more nuanced than that, and it very rarely uses the word prove. This is Craig being his true self, pandering to his people, using sciencey wordage, but ultimately talking utter bollocks. The downfall of verificationism prompted a resurgence of metaphysics, along with other traditional problems of philosophy which had been suppressed by verificationism. And accompanying this resurgence came something new and altogether unanticipated, a renaissance of Christian philosophy. Which has exploded a multitude of different Christian sects, 
none of which are able to verify their version of God is the right God. How is that better? Ironically, this renaissance began at the same time that the theologians of the 1960s were writing God's obituary and Christian Britain was dying. The seminal event probably came in 1967 with the publication of Alvin Plantinga's book, God and Other Minds. See link six for a downloadable PDF. Which applied the tools of analytic philosophy to problems in the philosophy of religion with an unprecedented rigor and care. And in his train has followed a host of Christian philosophers writing in the professional journals and participating in professional conferences and publishing with the finest academic presses. And by what metric can they be sure or have confidence at all that any of the ideas that they've come up with have any validity other than the process that they've self-defined to get to the conclusion that they want? And the face of Anglo-American philosophy has been transformed as a result. Not for the better, because there is so much more variety, because people are making up their own crap. Atheism, though still the dominant position at the university, is today a philosophy in retreat. Ignoring the bit about atheism being a philosophy, fnar fnar, retreat? Atheists are growing. In a recent article, the University of Western Michigan philosopher Quentin Smith laments what he calls the de-secularization of academia that evolved in philosophy departments since the late 1960s. This quote appears to come from a paper called The Metaphilosophy of Naturalism. See link 7 for an abstract. I could not find the whole paper, so I do not know the context of the partial sentence that Craig is quoting. Complaining of naturalists' passivity in the face of the wave of intelligent and talented theists entering academia today, Smith concludes, God is not dead in academia. He returned to life in the late 1960s and is now alive and well in his last academic stronghold, philosophy departments. The only reference to this concluding phrase that I could find is by William Lane Craig himself on his own website. Make of that what you will. I have no idea what the truth behind this soundbite is. It does appear though that Craig is painting secular academics as being upset that academia has not successfully expunged all religiosity from the university campus. Let's not forget that it wasn't that many years ago when academia was overrun by the religious. If religiosity really was the intellectual conclusion, then why is it declining faster in academia than in the wider population? The conclusion is obvious. Religion is not the intellectual hotspot that modern day apologists proclaim it to be. It is declining precisely because it can't handle the heat. To make it in academia, you must show your worth. And religion is leaving because it has failed at that task. Those who whine and moan about it are simply proving the point. Instead of rolling up their sleeves and doing the hard work that is required to achieve results, they bemoan their lost privilege. How very telling. All of the traditional arguments. Note, he said arguments. He didn't say evidence for God's existence, including the cosmological, teleological, moral, ontological arguments, not to mention creative new arguments, find intelligent and articulate defenders on the contemporary intellectual scene. And there are intelligent, articulate opposers on the intellectual scene. This is what happens in academia. There will always be intelligent people making arguments on both sides. People tend to argue for positions they already hold. This is exactly why verification is a good thing. It removes the biased human from the equation and sets up the scenario for an objective measurement. Science is not decided by the debater with the most convincing rhetoric. It is decided by the reliable replication of the experimental process. If Craig refuses to play that game, then he does not belong in the field. But you may ask, what about the new atheism? 
Doesn't it herald a reversal of this trend? Not really. As is evident from their bibliographies, the new atheism is in fact a pop cultural movement, lacking in intellectual muscle and blissfully ignorant of the revolution that has taken place in Anglo-American philosophy. Dismissal by patronizing insult. Well, fuck me, Craig, you've outdone yourself there. I am frankly astonished at the degree to which the lingering shadow of a long dead verificationism still hangs over much of popular culture. Beats making shit up, doofus. The revival of natural theology in our day is a great boon to the church. In talking to people, I find that the most commonly repeated objection to belief in God is there's no evidence for God's existence. This would be the perfect point on which to reel out loads of studies that have confirmed and verified the existence of God using the process which apparently the new atheists love so much. Since most Christians are ill-equipped to defend their belief in God, this serves as an effective conversation stopper. Sure, but do you know what would continue the conversation? You guessed it, evidence. But if you've mastered a few arguments for God's existence, should have called it. Then that objection won't stump you. If the unbeliever says there's no evidence for God's existence, you should look at him in astonishment and say, is that what you think? I could think of at least five good reasons to believe that God exists. My teachers told me at school when I was growing up, is not a good reason when you're an adult. But let's see if he brings out the evidence, shall we? And at that point, he's got to say, yeah, like what? And then you're off and running. Well, what are they? Help us out. I'm sure your audience wants to know what they are as well. What was meant to be a conversation stopper has suddenly become a conversation starter. And what you'll discover, I predict, is that most unbelievers are almost completely uninformed concerning arguments for God's existence. Yeah, but where's the evidence? They've just learned to repeat the slogan, there's no evidence for God's existence. And you can shut them up by playing them at their own game and providing some. And they have little to say beyond that. Oh, trust me, I have lots I can say. More than 100 episodes worth, in fact. I tell you, you'll be drinking from a fire hose when you watch the full video of William Lane Craig doing seven philosophical arguments for the existence of God in that seminar. And still no word about the evidence. Come on, guys, step up. And now it's time for the John Lennox intro. I bet you can't wait, can you? There is a sense in which the new atheists are a bit passé. They've been replaced by the new, new atheists, which are the old atheists. John Lennox doing what John Lennox does. I wonder if we'll actually get anything positive about Christianity. I constantly, when visiting schools particularly, am addressed by chaplains who say, why is everybody a Dawkins person? And that just shows that books like The God Delusion and so on have had enormous traction. Now, Dawkins is not simply an atheist, he is anti-God. Well, the Christian God, John, the God you worship, has an appalling track record for human rights. So maybe it's justified. So maybe look at why rather than complaining And militantly so. I am attacking God, all gods, anything and everything supernatural, wherever and whenever they have been or will be invented. And you notice the assumption behind this statement. Well, if God wasn't invented, surely God has the means to protect himself, a la Old Testament. Why does he need you, John? Stephen Hawking, of course, the far better scientist. He simply can't resist a poke, can he? has recently 
added his name publicly to the list of atheists. A brief history of time left it open because he wrote on the last page why it is that we in the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. Millions of Christians claiming to know the mind of God is not a problem, I presume? What I meant by we would know the mind of God is we would know everything that God would know if there was a God, which there isn't. I'm an atheist. Before we understand science, it is natural to believe that God created the universe. But now science offers a more convincing explanation. Indeed it does. That statement is important because it helps us understand what's going on in the culture. It's God as explanation pitted against science as explanation. Hardly sounds like a fair fight, does it? And I want to demonstrate that that's a completely false formulation to start with and very misleading. Maybe the ones to have a word with are those Christians who constantly and consistently deny science. Not just the young earth creationists, but the anti-vaccines and the climate change deniers. But this idea of science offering explanations has reached its zenith. Well, to be honest, science does offer explanations. I'm sure there's a list somewhere. In the philosophy that we call scientism. I should have gone and got a train wreck sound effect, shouldn't I? I feel I'm gonna need it. And scientism expressed by Sir Harry Croto. His obituary can be found at link 8. Who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Regards science as the only way to truth. Science is the only philosophical construct we have to determine truth with any degree of reliability. See link 9 for a whining piece by religionist Andrew Brown. Where he complains about the same point. The link to the speech appears to be broken, unfortunately. Brown makes the same complaint that Craig did earlier, that saying science has the answers is not a scientific statement. I imagine that there is a secret WhatsApp group where all the popular apologists are excitingly sharing these dumb points with each other. The statement that science is the only construct that determines things with reliability is a true statement, no matter how much the Christian might object. That doesn't mean there are no other truth-finding methodologies, just that they don't match the scientific method. The evidence for this is in the myriad of scientific experiments done each week, and the results that we see from them every day, be it in the classroom or the hospital ward. No other fact-finding process comes close. That Lennox's move to whine about scientism shows just how butthurt he is by this. This idea that there's only one way to truth. But that's not what he said. He said there's only one reliable way. That doesn't rule out other ways that might occasionally find truth. But you need reliable. Why not pick the most reliable? Why would anyone object to picking the most reliable? Of course, it's nonsense, even from a logical perspective. That statement is a statement by a scientist. It is not a statement of science. Yeah. I'm going to need a clown sound effect now, aren't I? So therefore he didn't get it from science, so if he's right, he's wrong. And perhaps it's too early in the day for logic, but... <laughs> These extreme statements often are self-refuting before you start. It is a logically contradictory statement. Maybe for the logically deficient. Another Nobel Prize winner who was much wiser was Erwin Schrödinger. Link 10. One of the scientists who developed quantum mechanics. I'm very astonished, he wrote, that the scientific picture of the real world around me is very deficient. It gives a lot of factual information, puts all our experience in a magnificently consistent order, but it is ghastly silent about all and sundry that is really near to our heart that really matters to us. It cannot tell us a word about red and blue, bitter and sweet, physical pain and physical delight, it knows nothing of beautiful and ugly, good or bad, God and eternity. Schrodinger died in 1961, 60 years ago. Science has moved on. Neurology has moved on. Maybe John should get up to date. I'm passionate about science. Could have fooled me. But we don't help ourselves if we think that science is in the unique position of leading to truth. 
to illustrate his feeble point, what John could do is roll out something that we do know that has not been achieved by science. Perfect opportunity. He'd get a round of applause and some silent atheists. If that were true, by the way, we'd have to shut at least half the faculties in every university tomorrow. You'd have no more history, literature, economics and music and art and so on. Getting accurate history is notoriously difficult. I'm not really sure what truth music and art give. Here's another Nobel Prize winner for science, E.T.S. Walton. I hope you've heard of him. Link 11. He was a believer. He, by the way, split the atom with Sir John Cockroft, so his eminence is unquestioned. And yet, no grand announcement that God has been found. So what? People who believe things occasionally do good science. How does that in any way validate an unrelated belief? Sir Gillian France was... Link 12. The head of Kew Gardens for a long time. For many years he wrote, I have believed that God is the great designer behind all nature. But no discovery of God is announced anywhere. I made a commitment to Christ as my personal saviour while a student at Oxford University. Red-blooded student, eh? Ha <laughs> I bet there was a girl involved. All my studies in science since then have confirmed my faith. I regard the Bible as my principal source of authority. Authority in what context? Did he use the Bible to achieve greatness in botany? Or did he use the scientific method? So what we've seen so far is the obvious. There are eminent scientists who are atheists and there are eminent scientists who are not only theists but Christians. What does that tell us? That belief is irrelevant and that actually doing good systematic validatory work is the key. It tells us that the issue is not science versus God. It's not science versus not God either. And if we might illustrate it by taking Walton with Peter Higgs, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics quite recently in Edinburgh, those two men have won the top prize in physics. So what separates them is not their physics, that's obvious. What separates them is their worldview. Higgs is an atheist, Walton a Christian. Like I said, doing good science is the key, not what you believe. So if science isn't a problem for atheism, why spend so much of this talk strawmanning atheism? And I want to suggest that if we're ever going to understand what's going on in our culture today, we need to realise that the real conflict is not between science and theology, but between worldviews. The worldview of naturalism and the worldview of theism. Naturalism is the flip side of atheism. Atheists often claim they don't believe anything. They just believe there's no God. That is not true. Otherwise, Dawkins wouldn't have written a 400-page book on the God delusion. Because their atheism has a correlative, and that is naturalism. All that follows from denying the existence of God. It is a worldview. It is a belief system. Affirmed by every scientific experiment that we have ever done. Every bit as much as Christianity, except there's evidence for Christianity. So bring it. Justin failed. William Lane Craig failed. Lennox, over to you. Three for three. So what we're faced with in the culture are two main worldviews. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Great. What's the methodology we can use to affirm that? Come on! And Carl Sagan, cosmos is all there is or was or ever shall be. The one is Christian theism, the other is naturalism. It's actually materialism. Lots of experiments affirm the material. What is the real relationship between science and worldview? Because Dawkins uses science, particularly biology, to push for atheism. Is that a valid thing to do? Or does science point more towards theism? And just to make it stark, we'll see that sometimes the worldview precedes the science. Like all those Christians who then become scientists and do science. Hmm, he might be onto something there, John. But isn't deduced from it. Here's a classic example, another Nobel Prize winner, 
George Klein, I am not an agnostic. I am an atheist. My attitude is not based on science, but rather on faith. See link 13 for a page that references this quote. Of course, it's picked up by Christians. But as usual, there is no context and no reference. I wonder how Lennox would respond if a Christian expressed the same sentiment about their Christian faith, that it wasn't based on science. Would we see it on a slide of things he loves to criticise? Personally, I don't affirm this statement, but I would be interested to know the wider context to better understand it. It tells me that George is making the effort to keep his atheistic predispositions out of the science lab, which surely must be a good thing, right? Oh, thank fuck, this bit's over. I wonder who's next. Amy or Ewing's talk on why God would allow suffering. We have a huge question before us, the question of pain and suffering in the world. I suppose I want to start by saying it's always important in apologetics to remember that the questions that people ask us don't occur within a vacuum of abstract thought. And particularly this question suffering doesn't happen in some neutral vacuum where we're all completely unaffected by the question. So suffering doesn't happen in an abstract vacuum of of philosophizing. And just, you know, this week, my godmother died. I was at her funeral this week. We've seen a British serviceman beheaded on the streets of London. Amy is referring to the murder of Lee Rigby. See link 14. My dear friend in church who's only just become a Christian, within three weeks of becoming a Christian, discovered she has breast cancer. She's got two children. One of my best friends in the whole world, I was her bridesmaid. Her husband has a brain tumour and humanly speaking, things are not looking good for him. A member of my church in the last few months has lost her five-week-old baby. We've buried him. So I stand here this afternoon to say that as we talk about suffering, and we are going to talk about it from an intellectual perspective today, but as we do that, I want you to bear in mind that reality that we all face, and that's just me, and every single one of us in this room will be bringing experiences to the table today. So pain is real in the experience of real people and any answer that does not connect with that reality is not an answer. In apologetics, we have to be careful about rushing in with intellectual arguments. We can win arguments and lose people and Jesus is just not interested in that. He's not interested in us being intellectually superior. So I just wanted to begin by saying that really. But then to say that having said all of that, the reality is that for many people, the question of suffering in a more abstract sense, how can there be all this evil and suffering in the world, is a real objection to Christian faith. If there was a loving God who really cared about people and who was powerful, genuinely omnipotent, you know, surely we wouldn't have the world we're in and that must disprove that there is this loving, all-powerful God. Before getting into the specific arguments that Amy brings up, I want to first acknowledge that Amy comes across as a genuinely compassionate and caring individual, much more so than the men who are featured in this episode. If I were ever to consider joining a church, it would be a church with people like Amy. Amy didn't open her piece with facile anti-intellectual rhetoric. She opened her piece with compassion for others an acknowledgement that, yes, sometimes life really does suck. Amy's demeanour makes me want to like her. Amy's demeanour encourages me to want to take her more seriously than William, John and that other dude we're about to hear. Let's hope her points don't spoil that. C.S. Lewis in 1940 set out to write an intellectual response to the question of suffering. In Lewis the Apologist we have both a response to the intellectual question and a personal response to the issue of suffering. And if you are a book giver, if you're someone who gives out books to other people, I think A Grief Observed is probably one of the best books you can give someone who's lost somebody recently. We're going to look at this question of God and suffering. 
do people just get what they deserve? If something bad happens, has that person merited that? Then we're going to bring it all down to land. I hope that sounds okay. Having said what I've said about the practical reality of suffering in our lives and the necessity for us as Christians of being able to make an emotional response with people who suffer that is appropriate, which doesn't involve rushing in with philosophical answers, but involves being there, listening to people, praying with them, inviting God by his Holy Spirit to come and be present with us in suffering. Having said all of that, let's now look at the question from a more intellectual perspective. There's no question that this issue of human suffering is deeply baffling. There is no question that when posited in the way I said earlier by the atheist, you know, if there was a loving God and he was all-powerful and he's also good, we wouldn't have the world that we're in. Yep, that's pretty much it. I don't think we would. In other words, the argument is either God isn't actually loving because there's all this suffering and he can't really genuinely love people and because he's powerful and he could step in. So he's either loving, but not powerful enough to step in and and save us, or he's really, really powerful, but he's not loving because he doesn't step in to stop suffering. Do you see the dilemma? That's how it's posed. As a parent, I absolutely take this view as a problem for the Christian God. And it is a barrier to me when it comes to taking Christianity seriously again. If I had the perfect foreknowledge that the Christian God allegedly has, then I absolutely would use that to stop my child from being hurt. And this is presented as a proof that God must not exist. He can't exist. It's been used by philosophers over years and it packs a punch, this one. It puts us on the back foot as Christians and some of us may feel that right now. Oh, is that it? I was actually hoping for more from Amy. Oh well, guess the patriarchy wins. Let's leap into another talk from the course by Amy. Ah, there's more from Amy. Oh good. Whose talk on the evidence for Jesus is a core part of one of the modules on looking at the evidence for the life and history of Jesus. Let's hear some of that now. In our world... There are people who will risk everything and pay a very high cost in order to be able to read the Bible. And yet at the same time, there are many people who deride the Bible, who say, well, you can't trust it. Guilty as charged. It's filled with fairy tales. It's been made up. Jesus was just a legend or somehow this was an agenda, a a patriarchal conspiracy of a group of men who tried to propagate a myth that isn't true and to take power over other people's lives through pushing their own agenda. Well, I don't quite go that far, but there are elements of those bits which could apply. Or there would be people in some of the great universities of our country, and I experienced this as a student studying theology, who would look at you as an evangelical Christian, someone who believes the Bible, look at you with with real pity. You know, poor you. You are so naive as to actually believe in this book. Maybe after three years at a great university, we'll cure you of your naivety. In this session together, we're going to be looking at um, how we begin to answer that sort of scepticism. Can we trust the biblical account? No. No, you can't. But I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say, which might change my mind. We're going to really look at that in two sections. We're going to look look at the question of, can we trust the text? We're going to look at the issue of textual criticism. Link 15 for an article on textual criticism. In essence, what textual criticism enables us to do is, as much as is possible, determine if the text that we have now matches what was originally written down. It says nothing about the accuracy of what was written down. And then we're going to look at the question of can we trust the actual content and specifically about Jesus. So we're going to be looking at the Gospels. Is there any reason for us to actually believe that what these Gospels say about Jesus is true rather than legendary? As I mentioned earlier, history is notoriously difficult. So normally, when events are recorded as historical, we compare them with events that we can confirm and see if the type of event exists, like somebody crossing a river. Yeah, people cross rivers all the time. Now, when it comes to miracles, 
people don't do miracles all the time, they are notoriously difficult, almost impossible even, to determine, validate or verify. So historical claims of miracles are much more problematic. And I suggest a big fat no, we cannot trust them because we cannot determine their accuracy at all. So let's begin with this question, can we really trust the text? Well, of course, you know that the Bible is a compilation of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. The Bible is written over a period of 1600 years by more than 40 authors. And they were people from all kinds of different backgrounds, kings, diplomats, poor people, fishermen, tent makers. The Bible is written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek, and it's written on three continents, Asia, Africa and Europe. None of that screams reliable to me. Already we can see that this is not a white man's religion. Already we can see that there is no conspiracy of one particular kind of person, one particular kind of language or one particular geography. The vast multiplicity of the Bible cultures that produce the text of the Bible from which the text comes is then multiplied as the Bible is copied and reproduced and translated into other languages. So particularly with the New Testament, when we're talking about the text or the manuscripts that we're dealing with, we're talking about thousands of manuscripts that survive in multiple different languages. The New Testament was written in Greek, and so we're going to focus on that. Focusing on just one part of the Bible does not necessarily extrapolate any perceived reliability to the rest of the Bible, especially given what was just said. We have around 5,800 handwritten manuscripts in the Greek language supporting the New Testament. People will say, well, how can we trust it? Hasn't it been corrupted? Aren't there all of these variations and differences between the texts? And, and uh, this is the point at which the study of textual criticism comes in. Textual criticism is simply the discipline that helps us to determine the original wording of any document whose original no longer exists. Okay, so textual criticism can be applied to any book, the Quran or the Bible or Caesar's Gallic War or Plato or, you know, it's not just about the Bible. It's about any document whose original doesn't exist anymore. But remember, you can only do textual criticism on documents that you have. Documents that have been destroyed are not available to you. Documents that only fragments are of only limited value. And they don't tell you the truth of what is written, only what was written. When you pursue this discipline of textual criticism, what you do is you gather the available manuscripts that do exist and you examine them and you compare them with one another. As I've already said, over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament have been catalogued. This number on its own is unhelpful without context. What are the date ranges of those manuscripts? What are the statuses of those manuscripts? How many of them are complete manuscripts? How many of them are just fragments? And by fragments, I mean such tiny fragments, they're barely a verse. That is what some of them are. Without that context being explained, it's difficult to articulate what is actually meant by that number. There is a lot of information on the internet about this. I have not included a link in the show notes because I just didn't know which was the best one to include. And what we see when we examine these manuscripts is that overall, what we see is a huge amount of, of overlap, but there is some variation. There is some variation. There are what we call textual variants. One precise form of the text has not been preserved. Michael Nazir Ali writes this. The survival of variant manuscripts is regarded as a strength by Christian scholars in establishing a critical text of the New Testament. The variations do not appear to have compromised either the historical integrity of the New Testament or its reliability as a canon of Christian doctrine in any substantive way. The reliability of Christian canon being transmitted is not the same as saying that what the documents say is true. 
the existence of a large number of manuscripts in different ancient languages with their origins in widely separated churches, yet in substantial agreement with each other, is an argument in favour of the New Testament. Reliability of what? The faithful transmission of the document contents? Okay, barring known forgeries like the ending to Mark. But this does not equate to the actual text being true. Also, don't forget that these transmissions were not being done by average people. These transmissions were done by scribes whose job it was to perform these tasks. It's not a shock that there is faithful transmission with occasional forgery. None of that answers the important question. Is it true? Now, I don't know if you ever read the Bible and you see a little letter A um, next to a verse and it will say, you know, in some manuscripts, this word is in the plural or this word isn't in there. Why do our translations of the Bible do that? Because there is no conspiracy to cover up the reality that the Bible is an ancient manuscript. And there are multiple manuscripts upon which it is based, and that is a strength. If only one copy survived, which had been pushed through by the church, that would reek of conspiracy, that would reek of power play. Like the ending of Mark? So the goal of textual criticism is to establish the original text with as much precision as possible. And as we look at this with regard to the New Testament with the Bible, what we see is quite amazing, I think. What we see is an astonishing integrity of the message of the text. But is it true? Fiction can still be reliably transmitted over centuries. Now, even some of the most radical liberal scholars... Radical liberal, eh? Oh, come on, Amy. Like Bart Ehrman, who works in America today, who works in this whole area of textual criticism, will agree that no substantive historical fact about Jesus or important Christian doctrine is questioned by the variations that we see within the textual criticism. But what process do you use to determine whether or not these alleged claimed facts are actually true? That's the important question. Let's think for a moment about what some of the earliest fragments are. And this is important. What's the earliest piece of the New Testament that exists? Just last year, in 2012, on February the 1st, a scholar called Dan Wallace was debating with Bart Ehrman, who I talked to you about. They were debating about the integrity of the New Testament. And he announced that six more second century papyri, that means pieces of the New Testament from after 100 AD, but that six of them have been found and that one of them, a fragment of Mark's gospel, has a good case for having been written in the first century, certainly within the lifetime of the disciples. Just one small fragment. Is that it? And, important question alert, how does that tell us if it's true. He's planning to publish this book and it needs to be peer-reviewed by scholars. But this is a staggering find in a collection in Turkey that had just been held by somebody and people didn't know what was in it. It's important that we have pieces of the New Testament that are so early because it doesn't leave enough time for legend to accumulate. Tiny fragments with only a couple of verses do not discredit the evolution of legends. One only needs to look at the explosion of conspiracies after the events of September 11th, 2001 to see that legends happened very quickly. Or to put a religious spin on it, the alleged appearance of Mary on May 13, 1917, as reported by children and quickly became widely believed. In my own family I have a tragedy that was reported as a miracle within 30 years. Amy and her fellow Christian apologists are flat out wrong to suggest that scraps of parchment that date within a few years of the alleged resurrection of Jesus do anything to defend it from the legend charge. This is a poor argument, and I'm amazed by how seriously it gets taken. And now we're on to the last, and arguably the least worthwhile, speaker in this sample. Oh joy. I'm going to call this ground zero because, like I said, could be 30, could be 33, but this is close enough. And I say ground zero because we're interested how far are we down the road from this date, because we're doing history. The same way you do history if your PhD in ancient history was on Richard the Lionheart. 
How good of Gary to mention an historical person with whom we can compare. Richard I, or the Lionheart, reigned from 1189 to 1199, so 10 years. There are quite a few internet sources of information. See link 16 for the Wikipedia entry, which has many references at the bottom of the page. What strikes me upon browsing this info is how much we cannot be confident in. I'll pick his death narrative as an example. He apparently died because a crossbow bolt injury to his shoulder went gangrenous. But there is confusion on who killed him. There are several names given, and one record reports it was a boy who shot him, and that Richard sent the boy free. Though it is also reported that after Richard died, the boy was horribly killed as punishment. What is the truth of these events? We don't know. So historians report that there are conflicts, but they don't seem to go out of their way to affirm a true narrative. And they certainly don't make any effort to harmonize the different stories into a single narrative. The exact opposite of what the likes of Gary Habermas do with the differing gospel narratives surrounding the life of Jesus. So, right from the start, I contend that Gary is being dishonest and disingenuous. Oh dear. And you want early sources for Richard. That's how you do history. We do. 200 years after his death, there are additions to the legend of Richard the Lionheart. Of course, these are dismissed as fiction. If only Christians would treat the later additions to the gospel narratives in the same way. And, and the one-two punch in history are the two E's. Early and eyewitness. Now people will say, well you know eyewitnesses aren't always right. Of course they aren't. Then why do you think they're used so much? Well I don't know, ask the historians. But why do you think eyewitnesses are used so much if they're not always trustworthy? Sometimes that's all you have. And often you don't even know if they really are eyewitnesses. Okay, I'll tell you what. Why don't you do your dissertation on Richard the Lionhearted and use, instead of using early eyewitness sources, why don't you use late, 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 nobody knew them sources? <laughs> Just because eyewitnesses can be wrong once in a while, do you think you should use non-eyewitnesses from six, seven hundred years later? Would that make you happy? No one is even remotely suggesting that, doofus. Unreliable eyewitness reports mean take them with a pinch of salt. Don't take them as... <clears throat> Gospel. Oh no, I want to use the early ones. There you go. Doesn't make them true though. Analyze them appropriately. This is going to be far more painful than any of us ever imagined, isn't it? Ho hum, we've started so we'll finish. So in history, earlier is better, eyewitness is better. If we're going to do the book of 1 Corinthians, I'll put 1 Corinthians about 55 AD. 55 AD seems to be about right for 1 Corinthians, written by Paul. I'm not sure what he thinks Paul is eyewitness to. Maybe that will become clear. Now, there's two major ways you could argue for the historicity of the resurrection. The first way that most New Testament scholars use is to use the Gospels. Edited hand-picked documents and the only complete copy is from a couple of hundred years later. Hmm. Early eyewitness? We'll see. I don't think it's anywhere near as strong an argument as the one I'm going to use. But for right now, let me outline the gospel argument, because it's good. It's still useful. In fact, James Crossley, the agnostic friend of mine who I was talking about dialoguing with, he did his doctoral dissertation on the gospel of Mark. And James Crossley does not affirm the resurrection. Well, guess when most scholars date Mark. 60, 70, at the most 75, that's where scholars put Mark. James Crossley puts Mark at about 40 AD. He's an agnostic, but he would put Mark 40 AD. And yet he still does not accept the resurrection narrative. Why would that be, Gary? And why didn't you say that? You can't write your dissertation on that unless you have good evidence for it. His mentor, who passed away a couple years ago, Morris Casey, C-Link 17. Another British agnostic unbeliever. Casey, his mentor, also puts Mark in 40 AD. But you ready? He uses totally different arguments than James does. And yet, having affirmed an earlier date for Mark, they still don't accept the claims of the resurrection. Why would that be, Gary? In other words, that's a lot of good, strong arguments to take Mark all the way back to the, God, to the, to the cross. All right, nonetheless, 
I'll use critical dates. I'll use dates the critics use because they really don't make, they're not that much later to make a huge difference. So the most common argument for the resurrection is to say, here's Mark at about 65 or 70. Again, I'm using critics' dates. Here's Matthew 10 years later at about 80. Here's Luke five years later at about 85. And everybody puts John at about 95. So, John's the latest, subtract 30, John's about 65 years after the cross. Everybody with me? John's about 65 years after the cross. And what evangelical scholars will say is, these are good sources. If you have sources from 40 years after the event to 65 years after the event, that's fair. That's very fair. The best-known skeptic in North America is a New Testament scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman. Uh, He does have a little connection to England because most of his books are published with Oxford University Press. He's a very well-known scholar, and when he does sources for Jesus, he goes 100 years. So I'm just saying John at 65 is well within the range. I heard of a, new te- a, a, a World War II person who did his memoirs of World War II in the early 1990s. And, and nobody would say to him, boy, in the 1990s, you're a liar because you're at plus 50. And nobody can remember things 50 years later. But we do say things get remembered very differently And did those World War II memoirs include such fantastical things as people walking on water, feeding 5,000 from a couple of loaves, or even rising from the dead? You'd say, give the guy a break. Nobody talks like that. Nobody would say you can't write your memoir of something at plus 50. But at plus 50, we would get every one of the Gospels in except John. And John's only 15 years after that. Now, in comparison, if you compare the New Testament to other ancient books... I'm not picking a bad example here. I'm actually picking a good example. Let's talk about somebody. I mentioned Richard the Lionheart. Let's take Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great dies approximately 300 years before Jesus. And guess what? A bunch of contemporaries wrote about Alexander. But here's the problem. We don't have any of them. We don't have the histories. They may show up in a monastery someday, but we don't have them right now. The earliest source, extended source, I don't mean a little inscription in stone here or, you know, something else. I'm talking about a a major source. The earliest source for Alexander's life is just short of 300 years after the fact. Ceiling 18 for a Wikipedia page listing some of the legends surrounding the life of Alexander the Great. We know legends exist in history. Why can't we accept that they also exist for Jesus? For Alexander. Now, memoirs of World War II at plus 50 is one thing. Plus 300 is just too long for good history. And that is precisely why some of the things that are written about Alexander the Great are not believed to be literally true. But you know what, Alexander, the best two sources for Alexander? Plutarch? And Arian, they're the best two sources. Do you know when they were? Plus four and a quarter to 450 after Alexander. Scenic 19 for details on the historiography of Alexander the Great. There are other sources besides those mentioned by Gary, so he's being a little bit selective in what he's reporting. But again, to the point, many years, yes, means it's more problematic. And that is also why much of the stuff that is written by Alexander the Great is considered to be legends. Come on, Gary. So obviously, we don't know anything about what Alexander did, right? No, we just read the history books. We know a lot about Alexander, but we have much earlier sources for Jesus. And earlier does not automatically equate with more truthful. 
Well, that was the beginning of Gary Habermas's talk on the evidence for the resurrection. Well, if that's how his talk started, frankly, it didn't engage with me. I have so little trust for Gary Habermas and for his methodologies as evidenced by some of my comments. So I really am not motivated whatsoever to investigate any of this course anymore. If you think you know a better quality Christian apologetics or evidence course, do let me know and I will take a look at that. In the meantime, I do intend to prepare and do more of these response episodes to some of the things that Christians say. Any feedback on the style of this or what you like or what you don't like will be appreciated and I will use that to improve the quality of the content that we're producing here. And with that, until next time, You have been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? Please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes. <laughs>